Welcome to Counterintelligence. This is Eric LeVay. Today's guest is Young Turks investigative journalist Ken Klippenstein. Thank you to Patreons Dana Berry, Andre Dunka, William Healy, Angela Jackson, Zacharias Zskor Kaminsky, Sasha Millstone, Craig Pierce, and Greg Schneider. This is Eric LeVay, and this is Counterintelligence. Ken Klippenstein, welcome to Counterintelligence. Hey, thanks for having me on. Ken, it's great to have you on, and uh, I love what you guys do at the Young Turks. And I thought maybe we'd start by just maybe if you could take us through a uh, sort of who the Young Turks are. I mean, our audience knows, but of course, just maybe for the show's purpose. And then also your role there as an investigative reporter, if you could. Um, the Young Turks is kind of a quintessential uh, new media outlet in the sense that it began um, as a YouTube channel. It was literally just um, Jens Uger, the you know, current CEO. He had left in the conservative disillusion with cable news. I think he was working for MSNBC prior and felt as though you know there were too many limits on on, on what he could say. So he just started like filming himself on YouTube. And it's kind of an interesting story. It was like very, <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I hate to speak, uh, you know, uh, in a complimentary way about one's boss, but um, I mean, <laughs> he built that from nothing. He did build that from nothing. And, you know, that's not, that seems like a difficult thing to do. He just, if you watch the early videos, he's just cooking and he's like filming himself while cooking and talking about whatever the news was from that day. And so, um, you know, years and years pass, he grows the YouTube channel to what it is. Uh, is able to monetize it. And then now it's, you know, now it's like a, it's not a huge company, but it's also not, you know, they have an investigative unit, which is too much to investigate. That's where I work. Um, and in addition to that, they've got um, a few different channels, um, not just YouTube channels, but now they have streaming services too. And so, um, you know, they've got people that follow the campaign, the 2020 campaign, people around. Um, they also have the main show, which is, uh, of course, the eponymous Union Turks. And they've got a few different um, shows in addition to that. So it's kind of interesting. It's like, I could, uh, this would never have existed. As, as much as the internet sometimes drives me insane, I, I suppose I should not, um, you know, be too harsh on it because I wouldn't have a job were it not for it. I, don't <laughs> think I'd ever, I would never fit in in one of those sort of, you know, legacy kind of um, settings. So uh, work for me, I guess. <laughs> That's funny. You know, it's funny. I think about the same thing. It's like, and I, we talk about that sometimes at Forensic News. Now, we don't want to fall into that trap of the media, this and that, especially because, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm an entertainment professional, so but more and more, you know, like I, like I was telling you off air, I, co- you know, I got my first byline. So I don't want to fall into that trap, but at the same time, I'm like you. I mean, I admittedly spend a lot of time being critical of uh, sort of major outlets, and these are ones I subscribe to and I love. So it's not it, – it's not – it's – I guess it comes more out of love than out of any kind of criticism. I want them to be better. Uh, and, and, and as I, I, you know, I read the financial oh, papers, like the Wall Street, I read like the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, Bloomberg, all the time. And you know, I have to hold my nose when I, uh, <laughs> you know, if I if I if if I see the op-ed section. But the reporting is actually quite high quality. So I think people often get sort of confused about, um, you know, I like these guys versus is the reporting. High quality because the truth is those you know big legacy papers and the resources that that are just you know I'm sorry it's necessary to spend a lot of money to be able to dig up original news um, so I don't know how relevant it is if you like them or not I mean who, who gives a shit if what I how I feel about something what is the you know what is the quality of content and you know a lot of the opinion tends to be confined to that stuff anyway so uh, yeah I think it's a lot more nuanced than 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 certainly I came into thinking and, and perhaps a lot of other people do. I totally agree. And you know, everyone who listens to this show knows the Young Turks. And by the way, I want to thank you for that uh, background. I had no idea actually how the Young Turks started. And that's 
you know, that's, that's just good to know. I mean, that's, that's how anything starts. It's, it's motivational to hear. I mean, just me personally, we, at what we're doing at forensic news, it's good to know that what Jenk started has grown into what it is now and, and all the work you guys are doing. Um, yeah, sort of some corny feel good Silicon Valley. It's one of the good, one of the few good cases where it actually worked for somebody. <laughs> Not you know the many ones that just because, but it's a lot harder now because the internet is becoming more controlled. Um, they are throttling. They've made it more difficult to monetize political content. Not just on YouTube, but on social generally. So um, you know things are very much fluid, and I you know um, I never know quite what to tell people. Young people always call me asking for advice about. It how to break in and it's gotten, you know, tougher and it never was great, uh, at least not in, in my life. So, um, it is sort of a unusual story in that, um, it, it turned out okay. You know, <laughs> advice is tough for anyone because advice, when people give you advice, it's always what worked for them. That's, that's literally exactly. what exactly. And I don't know. And I mean, that's specific I, you know. to a certain period in time and like just looking at the way, you know, the social media platforms, even in the last couple of years, it changed dramatically. You know, I mean, we see now Twitter not including, uh, making it so there can't be uh, political content. I mean, these are huge changes in, in very short periods of time. What I really wanted to ask you was, the Young Turks is a huge independent outlet. And the, really what I wanted to ask you was, we're, we're living in a sort of an interesting time uh, with regards to media. And what, what I want to ask you first was, how do you feel, how do you feel the role of independent media as opposed to the more traditional media right now and covering this administration? I mean, how do you, how do you see uh, what the, the big outlets are doing as opposed to what you're doing and any criticisms you may have, uh, if you could? Yeah, well, obviously I'm you know, biased because I uh, work in this uh, segment of the media ecosystem. But um, I, I do think that in certain respects we have more range of motion. And I should you know, add that I know there's quite a lot of honorable reporters and friends of some of them at the legacy places. So it's more complicated than these are the good guys, these are the bad guys, because there's factions within companies and people don't all agree on things. And um, there are a lot of things legacy can do that we can't because we just lack the resources. But um, stuff that we can do um, uh, that they can't is we tend not to have a pre, a, a big pre-existing relationship with um, the um, public affairs in, in different government agencies, which, um, you know, I won't name, name names, but, um, you know, there's, uh, at, you know, if, if a paper's a, uh, you know, a big important paper, they want to maintain a certain relationship with these different places so that they could get the exclusives and so on and so forth. And, um, if, you know, if you're at a place like the interest, you're really give a shit about <laughs> that. And obviously you want to be, you know, truthful and accurate and everything, but that doesn't necessarily, um, coincide with, um, you know, the interest of, uh, these various federal agencies. I'll give you an example. The CIA, um, I remember there was a case of a FOIA request where um, Adam Johnson, another independent journalist, um, requested, I think it was, they, they gave some document. the CIA public affairs gave some documents to the New York Times, I believe, um, and then uh, Adam uh, FOIA'd it, and they wouldn't give it to him. And that's very interesting. He ended up litigating, and the court even found that, uh, if, I'm, if I recall correctly, um, they, uh, they upheld that the CIA could selectively disclose this stuff the media, which is amazing, because you would think if they give it to them, it's either been declassified or is not sensitive. So mm -hmm. what would the rationale be for being able to give it to one outlet and not another? So I would say that kind of relationship is uh, a huge advantage of being at um, some of these um, smaller, smaller places that, that you don't have the same sort of um, kind of institutional pressures or allegiances, I guess, um, that, that you might have some of the legacy outlets. 
That's fascinating. So some of it is just, honestly, it sounds like the entertainment business. Some of it is just uh, the bigger you are, the more of a, a connection you can have, which can help or hurt, depending on. Yeah, I just say, I would say, um, you know, it, uh, a big ship turns really slowly and it might have a ton of firepower and, and um, you know, resources, but uh, it can't, it doesn't have the same agility that I, you know, I sort of think of myself as, I'm on like a little schooner just zipping around, you know, Yeah. <laughs> maybe don't have, uh, quite the, you know, uh, firepower that, that, that would be ideal, but, um, there's all sorts of other cool things you can do. So I don't know. It's kind of here, neither here nor there. Uh, again, when, when young people ask me for advice about what kind of media do on, I don't know. It depends on what you want to do. <laughs> you know, it's a different data. It's a different battle at, at, at different types of places. And that's really up to your temperament and your, you know, goals and, and, and so on and so forth. So, what are your thoughts on the, um, for lack of a better phrase, it's the one that we hear all the time, the the both sides coverage that, you know, legacy media outlets, and it's not to pile on them. It's just I'm honestly interested because you're the, uh, the Young Turks is a huge outlet, but it's independent. I mean, Young Turks has never done a both sides story ever. Like I've never seen that and I follow you guys closely. What, what are your thoughts on that and that just how that has become a per- pervasive problem in, uh, in larger media? Yeah, I think that's harmful. I think the goal should be to be honest, um, you know, not to affect some kind of false equivalency between uh, two parties in the case. The, I mean, the idea behind um, the sort of, you know, I think, you know, at its best, the uh, principle behind that is you want to give different people a fair hearing. And right. that seems reasonable to me. You want to give both sides a comment. But that doesn't mean that you, you know, equate the two and say, well, this side says this, this side says this. Who, who's to say... <laughs> Who's to say what's true? And, and right. you know, very often it's quite obvious what's true. It sure so um, I don't know. I think it's kind of a false um, choice between, um, you know, quote, objectivity and whatever else. Like the, the, the goal should be honesty, I think. I totally um, agree. And, uh, you know, my, my only other comment on that is that I think that the whole thing and and I've seen a parallel in politics and even what's going on in impeachment. I think both sidesism comes out of fear because it, it's it's true in any part of life. When you when you take a stand, you immediately have opened yourself up for for criticism. Uh, but when you when you attempt to go above the fray, uh, you then you're kind of playing both sides of the fence. And right. I don't know. That's that's just the way I feel about it. It's like prior to two years ago and this this election. I don't know. I I was definitely far less politically vocal, and I took far less shots and a far and uh far more people were speaking to me and now a lot has changed um but hey what, what are you gonna do right yeah that's that's kind of yeah. feels yeah. full of tough choices uh there's no <laughs> formula we just gotta you know use kind of things yeah yeah uh moving on uh, <laughs> that was that was the opinion portion of the show um <laughs> I, I want i want to talk about uh your new piece at the young turks uh which is truly a blockbuster. Ken, uh, so if I understand it correctly, the military has changed the rules of engagement at the border. Can you go ahead and just tell us about that? That's right. Um, There has been hesitation about uh, the military being portrayed and, in fact, enjoying, uh, you know, the the full sort of um, authorization to use various forms of force on U.S. soil for obvious reasons, because, um, you know, we have the Pocket Comitatus Act, uh, which was a Reconstruction era law passed after the civil right after the civil war ended, um, 
you know, surprise, surprise, people don't like the military stamping around and <laughs> being able to do things, and it has a corrosive effect on a civil society and democracy. So they passed that, and kind of the spirit behind it is just, yeah, like I, like I just said, the, the military should be curbed in terms of what it can do in its own country, because that opens up all sorts of, um, you know, uh, possibilities in terms of um, authoritarians exercising control over the country, intimidating the public. So... Um, this was sort of concerning for those reasons. And, uh, you know, some folks in the military got upset when they saw the story and, you know, people were saying, uh, I had some people reach out to me and say, you know, the troops are not going to just open fire on people. And, you know, I think that's probably true. I, I don't think, and, and certainly if anyone was to do it, I, I don't think that would be the norm, but the concern here is not, you know, uh, in practical terms, is there going to be a massacre, or at least not to my mind. Um, the concern here is a gradual uh, rollback of these sort of uh, norms of civil society that I think are important. And if we're willing to, um, as the documents that were leaked to me from someone in the Pentagon show, um, permit the military to uh, not just use force, but use lethal force at the border, specifically in regards to um, civil unrest, which I thought was a very uh, sort of alarming term, that, you know, this doesn't bode well for um, what a figure might trump what a figure like Trump may feel like he has the freedom to do because there doesn't seem to be much in the way of pushback um, against against this new, these new policies. And thank you for clarifying that. That's really what I want to emphasize to to those listening to the show. The and just to just to say it again, uh, the military, the rules of engagement have now changed so they can use lethal force during civil disobedience do I, or civil unrest. Do I have that more or less correct? Civil unrest. <laughs> yes, that's correct. Uh, and I also found it fascinating. They don't define what civil unrest is in those documents, do they? No. And it's sort of, I, I, I use it as an example, the um, army, what is it? The uh, army handbook, um, which, which does sort of describe it and it doesn't, uh, you know, define it in super direct terms. This was, there was a new sort of uh, um, part of the handbook that was released um, for, you know, handling civil unrest maybe like six or seven years ago, I think. Mm. And, you know, it makes it very clear that they should um, prioritize uh, and use non-lethals and, uh, you know, in response to them now, not just because that's morally the right thing to do, but, uh, you know, military and law enforcement have so many more tools now than they even did very recently um, to, to quell, you know, so say there's a riot there. Um, and, you know, the argument, uh, as was put to me, was, you know, like, what are we supposed to do? Just let ourselves get killed or something? And it's like, no, of course not. I you know, don't want soldiers or anybody to get killed. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I, it, it seems a little bit misleading to say that um, the only thing you can do at that point is just resort to lethal force. They've got, you know, uh, different kinds of um, crowd suppressants like tear gas. They have, um, you know, rubber bullets and all sorts of things that we didn't have 100 years ago. And that's really what the Army Handbook um sort of stresses that 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 they should that should should be a first resort and that um lethal force should be a very last resort and they're even just talking about um you know the 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 um the uh national guard um not the military like the you know um you know marine corps and things that are that are deployed down at the border right now so this is a you know radically different case in a number of respects and when they say civil unrest i mean i don't want to put words in anyone's mouth whether it's you or even the government but what other kind of unrest is there than a protest? I mean, isn't that what we're talking about? Well, it can also, you're right, it can include that, but it can also include, um, you know, riots. And uh, what I thought was alarming was that Trump had actually said not very long ago that, um, you know, 
he, he alluded to migrants throwing rocks and he says if they throw rocks, we just need to shoot them. Right. And um, it, it appears, uh, if you look at the document, that uh, this came straight from POTUS, the authorization uh, to use lethal force. So I, you know, I don't think it's unreasonable to um, surmise that <laughs> maybe related to <laughs> what he alluded to in his public speech when he said, uh, when he talked about these, you know, hordes of migrants throwing rocks at poor soldiers. I mean, I was just thinking too. I know there's a lot of there's a lot going on at the border, but I was also wondering, did did the government cite any specific examples for why this, frankly, unbelievable change? Like, I can't think of any um, unbelievable protests or has something happened that scared them other than uh, the, you know <laughs> what's going on right now. No, and you know, uh, I'll give you a I'll give you the the uh, drop here. I've got more on this coming out soon. Ooh. But, um, you know, uh, a lot of the military seems to think this is ridiculous. I think that based on people I'm talking to uh, and the documents themselves, that um, these are directives coming down from the political from on high that the military themselves uh, seems to think is ridiculous. So um, what I what I published in the document, people can go in the article and, and, and see it embedded in there, was it's called a, uh, it's called an operation order. Um, that sort of defines these terms. But as you point out, they don't really offer much in the way of illustration or examples. And another great reporter, Jim Laporta, he's the um, uh, Pentagon correspondent for Newsweek. He himself was a former Marine, if I recall correctly. Um, he also brought up this point with the Pentagon and said, how do you define uh, these different uses of force? Because he found another case where they could use lethal force against vehicles that they think um, you know, may pose a threat of serious injury or duck to soldiers and so he asked them he said what uh, so what are some instances of this? like what would it look like and they just didn't respond so your guess is as good as mine unfortunately that's fantastic and by the way thanks is there any uh i mean i know you're so this sounds like it's developing is there any uh anything you want to break here anything new you a teaser perhaps <laughs> uh. <laughs> um what i what i told you is about as confident as, as i can say because i want to I, sure. I try to be um you know have things really nailed down but but um but yeah that it this it disappears to be coming from the from the administration and not from the military itself. Jim Laporta is a great reporter, and just for everybody, Jim, I believe, is the one who broke the story that the other day that the uh, leader of ISIS had been killed, uh, so, and uh, along with a couple other guys, he's a, a really great reporter. Uh, and uh, the output is just crazy. I can't keep up with this guy. Yeah, <laughs> so much stuff. We've talked a little bit just on Twitter, and I, I just he also just has that, like you said. I mean. To be a military reporter and be a, a Marine is like, that's kind of the, a, that gives you just sort of a, a background that a lot of people don't have who are working on that. It's really, um, I, I really hope he comes on this show as well at, at some point. Um, I also, and I, I don't know if we'll get into this on this show, but I did want to, you also wrote a couple months ago, a blockbuster about the FBI's priorities and uh, sort of targeting um I guess the phrase was black identity extremists. And I just, the reason I want to bring that up just briefly was that in that article, you, you, you also referenced, or maybe you did it on the young Turks live. I can't remember that the people on the ground, the regular FBI agents are like trying to do their job as the military is, but these are political decisions that are, that are coming from high up. Do I have a more or less correct? Yes. That's the impression that I, I think the documents give and, and certainly speaking with people, that's what it sounds like. So in terms of this, uh, thank you. In terms of this civil unrest, I, I so I, I just want to again get this straight: the the military under these rules could open fire on American soil lethally and and kill Americans. 
I mean, is that what I'm understanding? They, that does appear to be the case. They don't specify. They say at ports of entry. I see. Um, and they don't say which side of the port of entry, but I imagine that um, you would want to specify <laughs> not the American side of the port of entry. <laughs> because um, if you look at, at, you know, things other folks in the Pentagon are telling me is that they're concerned about protesters, like the anti-ICE protesters, for instance. Right. Um, so I, I'm, you know, I'm pretty sure that this is in response in part, not just to migrants, but also, um, you know, domestic um, opposition to, to these policies. So, yes, I believe that's the case. I should add one caveat. Um, in the operations order, it does note that um, they have to, uh, the military has to believe that they are in threat of, um, se- I think it was uh, serious bodily harm or death. Um, and so I guess it's better than <laughs> just using it indiscriminately. But as we know um, from, you know, local law enforcement, that can be um, conceived uh, pretty broadly, I think. What about, pro- yeah, right, exactly. What about property? Because I read the PDF documents and maybe, uh, is this is this to protect against property too, or just just uh, you know human life? No, it also includes property. Um, but the type of property it has to—it's it, not just any property. It has to be property deemed by the military to be to uh, to be dangerous. So, for example, if there's military equipment, if the if if the civil unrest somehow—I mean, this is sort of fantastical because I'm sure. trying to imagine you know some ICE protesters just grabbing crates of ammo i mean it sounds ridiculous but um in any case that that is how they define it is uh, anything that can that that can quote inherently dangerous that's the term they use in the operational order um so another instance that i think can be probably um defined fairly broadly but um i suppose that's better than not having any sort of um card out you know <laughs> yeah that you know that's absolutely incredible i mean because in American law enforcement, I mean, I, I don't have these cases in front of me, but specifically can't do those things. You, you know, you, or you're not supposed to anyway, you're not supposed to shoot someone in the back who's, you know, running away with the TV. I mean, that, right. that's incredible. Uh, so just to protect yeah, property. So too. Yeah. Yeah. I thought so too. I mean, we're seeing a very significant shift in, um, the norms of, uh, military conduct domestically. And I, and I wish that there was a sort of response in Congress and in the public commensurate with what I believe um, the threat is, but it just, and I don't mean that, you know, I know a lot of congressional staffers and I know that they're just overwhelmed right now. There's so much, I mean, you know, as well as I hear a media <laughs> person too, you know, we can't even keep up with the scandals at this point. So <laughs> that's part of it, but this, this stuff is very concerning. And I, and I worry that ordinary people don't have the sort of, um, Civic literacy to understand why these things are dangerous. Right. Uh, you know, is there any, uh, since your reporting, has that affected any, is Congress looking into this? I mean, any, have you noticed any, any change in the, in the government? I've had staffers reach out to me and um, express concern about it. Um, I think they generally do want to do something about it, but again, there's limited bandwidth. Um, Congress actually is a lot tighter on cash and people think in terms of resources that they actually have and, and, and staff and things like that. So I, I think there is concern, but not formal uh, movement. And there's just generally, I think, uh, sort of deference that Congress shows the national security apparatus um, that that is very concerning. I mean, um, you, you know, if you look at the church and the Pike Committee and all these things, these are far from perfect, but at least they sort of stood up to the you know, CIA and the different um, IC components. Today, it's extremely limited. And, um, you know, even in the popular discourse, there is not, um, uh, I don't think that there is a, uh, 
sort of adversarial view, um, not just between the, the, the press and, 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 the, and the IC. And I'm not saying IC is necessarily bad. Of course, we need, um, you know, national security apparatus to keep us, you know, safe. But um, the, the powers that they enjoy have become uh, sort of unfettered in a lot of regards. And the secrecy, too, has, has really grown. And, and I just, again, haven't seen a response commensurate with, with, with those changes on the, on the part of the public or, or really the press or Congress, in my opinion. Right. I mean, yeah, and I've dived in a little bit to the FOIA thing, which I might have some questions for you off air, but just the letters I've gotten back, it's like, yeah, I mean, just the, the I mean, obviously the government has always kept their secrets, always had their reasons uh, sometimes, which are good, some maybe not, but the, yeah. just the letters you get, or you're like, like what? Like, I don't. Oh yeah. Yeah. And we know <laughs> empirically that that secrecy has just exploded in terms of, cause they have to do audits and things. And you can look and see there are good reports, um, you know, uh, internal government audits and things like that, showing that the number, that the, that the uh, degree to which the government falls back on classification um, of documents is just proliferate. It's just mushroomed. It's crazy. It's out of control. Uh, and, you know, I'm not against keeping things. I don't want, I don't want to know the nuclear codes. I don't want anyone else to know the nuclear codes. That's, you know, secrecy in principle. I'm fine with that. But um, since 9-11 in particular, you have just seen it. Um, meteoric rise in this and um, there doesn't seem to have been any sort of tapering off or attempt to sort of um, you know pull pull the reins on this as 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 you know uh, militant groups like al-qaeda and isis have declined so all of that i think is extremely concerning yeah i remember that patriot act i'm probably a little older than you and it's just you know you kind of knew it was like the mission creep is going to happen and you know here we are and it that's where we are right here. <laughs> um, yeah. I would actually love, now that I thought about it, I really would love to hear a little bit about the, because uh, it, it really was a blockbuster report. And I want to also tell everyone, uh, Ken's reporting on the FBI and the priorities in 2018 was recently in, uh, it was it was showcased in Congress. At, uh, Ken, can you tell us about the article about the FBI's priorities and targeting what they what they call black identity extremists? Yeah, so several months ago, I obtained um, from a source in the Bureau um, a list of the priorities that they, which they publish annually. And these priorities are not an abstract thing. They actually determine, you know, how much resources can be dedicated to each of these um, priorities. And so uh, what I got in particular was the um, list of counter-terror priorities. And um, what was on that list, I thought, was pretty shocking. Um, they listed, of course, Black identity extremists, which I had known from um, you know, prior reporting. But what we didn't know was how they went about defining that. And in addition to that, um, from the initial report on it, I believe was in Yahoo News by, uh, I can't remember who the reporter's name was, but um, they had sort of confronted that after that came out, the FBI, you know, reassured everyone and, and uh, FBI Director uh, Chris Ray, I believe, um, went to the Senate and, and reassured them, you know, we don't use that term anymore. We don't use black identity extremists anymore. We we fixed this, so you don't need to worry about it. And um, what I found based on documents linked to me was that they do still use the essence of that term. They just changed the name. So they changed. It's kind of like they just swapped out the label on the um, you know can of food, and it's the same food inside of it. So now they call it quote racially motivated violent extremists. Oh, and um, so it doesn't have the word black in it, and I guess that's good. But um, they define it in. Um, basically the same way and you can um you know look at the article and i embed the leaked documents in it and you can see that um their definition of it is extremely similar 
Uh, and what's amazing is that I also found um, the, specific, the specifics of the definition um, black identity extremist. I can't remember if this is true subsequent, but um, certainly at one point it, uh, in their definition of it, they said that um, it was these sort of um, black nationalist groups that arose uh, or found their origins in the um, Ferguson protests, which was really amazing to me because um, I don't think anyone could look at the Ferguson protests. I'm you know, sure, as with any protest, there are instances of, um, you know, uh, violence, but I don't think anyone could look at that movement as a whole and, and characterize that as, you know, some kind of violent um, insurgency or something. So uh, I was really surprised. I mean, I guess <laughs> disappointed, but not surprised, but I was very, yeah. uh, you know, upset to see that. There's a really incredible parallel going back to your, your more recent story about the the rules of engagement at the border. It's almost like there's some sort of time machine going on because the, the picture of the American radical as like, you know, back in the 60s, it's like whoever's in charge of these policies is stuck in that time machine and they they don't want a civil unrest and they're afraid of of minorities and, and whoever. And it's like, I, I mean, I'm really sort of I'm really curious, like who's actually coming up with this? Because the picture in my head is a very old sort of a person who's not living in today anymore. Uh <laughs> I don't mean, well, you know. What's interesting is uh, when they define the different threats, they also have um, uh, listed white supremacists. And so they, they sort of have to describe what they believe the origins of these things are and how to deal with it. And they identify socioeconomic stuff, you know, a decline in the economy, decline in wages, things like that. Um, I, if, if I recall correctly, and you guys should check, I don't want to say this with certainty, um, mm. uh, they didn't include that in the black identity extremists. But I think if you're serious um, about, you know, if you've got an actual concern about, you know, civil unrest, there are ways to deal with that. You don't just sort of, um, you know, uh, wring your hands and, and, and say we need to bring in overwhelming force. Um, you know, you can also look at the uh, socioeconomic factors, which was the whole point of Ferguson, I thought, was not just about police violence, but, you know, as MLK said, that riot is the language of the unheard. It was an expression of... Um, a group of people that had been mistreated and, and not, you know, adequately um, heated in, in, in government and in civic society, uh, there are ways to deal with that. But unfortunately, that doesn't appear to be how the government is responding. It's it's just, I mean, I'm rarely speechless, but, and I want to say too, if you go to, if you go to the Young Turks and you go to the story section and read Ken's article, you you did include the the PDF document from the FBI. Am, am I correct? Yeah, that's right. It's all in there, and I encourage people to read that because that source stuff is really important. Don't trust the you know. I try my best to frame it as well as I can, but nothing's going to be better than the primary source document. So take a look in there. I found it fascinating. It was just also just a window sort of into the FBI. So for for the listener, if you haven't looked at it, there's this list of I guess what are the these are. The, these are what the FBI's priorities are for what they think is dangerous to the country. Am I more or less correct about that, Ken? Yeah, these are counter-terror threats that they consider um, first and foremost. So I'm looking at this list. I mean, if, if this wasn't so serious, it's like the first one was like Al-Qaeda or something, and the next one was what we're talking about right now, r- racially or okay. black identity. Is like, are you? is this a joke? Like, right, yeah, Al-Qaeda? We were talking... <laughs> Right, we were talking before about the dangers of, um, you know, conflating things, and I can't think of a worse or perhaps a better example of, of a false equivalency than to, you know, draw a line between, um, you know, white supremacists and 
black identity extremist. And what's interesting is when they define those two terms, they're able to provide multiple examples of white supremacist um, violence that resulted in, you know, numbers of deaths. Yeah. And in the case of black identity extremists, they don't provide a single example, as I recall. Um, certainly not as many as white supremacists, and I don't think, um, if I'm remembering right, that they include any examples at all. And that speaks volumes. And so now they've tried to collapse those two categories into one, uh, the one that I mentioned before, uh, racially motivated violent extremists. Um, and that, to me, seems uh, ridiculous because yeah. uh, we've seen, you know, in terms of deaths, it's no comparison. Absolutely. I, I just, yeah, I don't know. I, uh, it's just, just reading through that. I sort of, I sort of shook my head and, uh, you know, <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about what, how the reporting led to a Congressman sort of grilling FBI director, Christopher Ray? Yeah, I was sort of frustrated initially. Um, because the story did very well in terms of, you know, media picking it up. The Times didn't touch it, and neither did the Post, which I was disappointed in. Not necessarily for my own, you know, uh, glory or whatever, but that's, uh, these are the institutions you need to sort of pressure the government to respond to it. So it sort of did very well on, you know, social media, and even among, like, fairly large, I remember there was a story, references to it in the Atlantic, Newsweek, you know, pretty much every non-New York Times Waco paper you could think of, I think. Um, and so it was sort of quiet for a little while. And what's interesting about, I, I've just been so busy, what I should have done is um, kind of pressed Congress on this stuff myself. But um, when we saw the representative congressman, I believe from Louisiana, um, press the FBI director on this, uh, he alluded to having discussed this with him multiple times in the past. So uh, what I suspect and what I've heard intimations of from folks in Congress is that this is something that they have that they're very upset about, especially the Congressional Black Caucus, for obvious reasons. I, I wish everyone was upset about it, but yeah. certainly that group is. Uh, and that they appear, but this is what I was talking about before, where um, there's a tendency to uh, not want to alienate the intelligence community and uh, to try to deal with things in a sort of quiet way that allows them to save face, which I, I wonder if, if, this, if this congressional grilling was, was that sort of boiling over because they felt as though they weren't being listened to and that the bureau hadn't responded. And then finally, um, confronting him about it. Cause he said that he had mentioned it multiple times before. I just never saw any public mention of that. So perhaps yeah, that's been private. Yeah. I just want to be clear too. Like, and just personally, this isn't about, I, you know, my views might be more on the left, but I've never been, I have no personal feelings about the FBI or police. I mean, I think most of them go out and do, a good job and they do the best job they can. So it's what, what I found so disturbing about this was that any person with a remote who follows politics or anything knows that the biggest danger to this country is white nationalists and right wing extremists. I mean, that's just the, I think the home department of Homeland security said that in a report that was buried all the, all these incidents with bombers and all this stuff that's happened. I mean, you know, you correct me if I'm wrong, but they're, they weren't black identity extremists. So I, I guess what I find so disturbing in a non-personal way is I want to know that the FBI is protecting me and the logic, and I'm a logical person, shows that that's what they should be looking at. And I read your article and I'm like, why are you looking at these other people that don't exist? <laughs> I guess. What's interesting is that your view is not so far out there. It's one shared, uh, at least in, in my experience, by federal law enforcement. Um, you know, I know folks in DHS, 
FBI, DEA, and um, they're echoing a lot of what you're saying. And my understanding is that there's a you know great desire to get more resources uh, for not just white supremacists, but also these um, another big concern is the militia groups, um, you know these the Ted Bundy kind of stuff. Um, and, and, and that's grounded in, in, you know, empirical data that, that, that they do for, that they do pose, you know, a much greater threat. And my understanding is that part of it is the administration, um, in their insistence, you recall President Trump said, um, you know, there were good folks on both sides of the Charlottesville conflict. Mm-hmm. So you can sort of infer from that why there is an urgency on the part of the White House to, to, um, uh, sort of redesign the way the, the, the law enforcement is handling these things. But another problem is they're just stuck in the post 9-11 um, system where a lot of their resources in the system is designed for organized but non-state terror groups like Al-Qaeda or ISIS or Nusra, so on and so forth. And they, have, and they, and they need to get out of that sort of structure, but it takes a sort of, uh, how do you say, like um, conductor Mm-hmm. at the podium to kind of organize that and say, okay, well, now that ISIS has sort of collapsed and Al-Qaeda is not, doesn't have operational capability that it did, um, we can move on to, you know, uh, the, the the new threats. Um, but, I mean, you're really seeing this is what happens when you get a president, or not just that, but an administration too, because you've got Pence and these other appointees who just are kind of asleep at the wheel. Um, you don't get basic technocratic, um, uh, you know, competence. In either one of your stories about the rules of engagement or about the the FBI that we're talking about, do we have any idea who specifically is handing out these orders, the political appointee? Do we have any idea who that is? No, in this case, we do not. Oh, that's Um, interesting. It it very likely has to be, you know, sort of signed off on by the FBI director, but we we don't know who sort of the um, origins of of this stuff is. Yeah, and the, and the final thing I say on that, I'm not sure if it was in the article or if I saw you and Jenk talking about it on one of your broadcasts, but it seemed that there was a sense of that maybe why this was happening from whoever's handing out these orders is that they, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that they're aware of the grave problem of, of white supremacists and they're attempting to somehow, again, coming back to both sides, just, I don't know, take the heat off them by doing this both sides thing. Is that Was any of that true? It sure feels that way to me. Yeah. Yeah. That's really something. I, I don't know what to say about that. Um, yeah, I thought maybe finally we could just, uh, on a lighter note, turn <laughs> some serious stuff here. <laughs> yeah. um, yeah, what are you talking about? Uh, don't worry. I'm not going to go with the Krasenstein brothers. Um, go ahead. Yeah, I feel like that's – no, I really just wanted to get your thoughts on, uh, on 2020. And, uh, I mean, we could touch on impeachment if you want, but really just – we're, we're, we have a year to go in this campaign. Uh, I've seen you out on the trail. I mean, where, where do you think we are now and where we're going to be by November? Well, there's been a lot of volatility. Um, just today, a new poll came out showing, um, and you know, one must be skeptical of not just uh, individual polls, but also polls this early on. Because let's be real, people aren't pay- only weirdos like us who are online all the time <laughs> are paying a whole lot of attention to what's going on now. But uh, that being the case, I, just amazing to see. Uh, I believe Buttigieg was a couple points above Biden in this most recent poll for um, Iowa, and then um, you've got Warren and Sanders performing uh, at roughly the same in first. Uh, so I think things are much more in the air. I've never made predictions because um, those never seem to turn out well for anybody. 
and you know, frankly, I don't think anybody's very good at. Who knows? There's a lot of variables, man. I mean, human affairs is a complex uh, domain. It's difficult to see what's. I thought, for instance, personally, I thought Kamala was going to do a lot better, and was quite surprised to see her uh, campaign so sputtering and, and running on money today. Also, um, Beto O'Rourke uh, suspended his campaign uh, after having run money, and that was another figure that you know I personally and a lot of other folks thought was going to do quite well. So I don't think anybody knows. I think I think it's up in the air right now. I, I feel too like I, I maybe look maybe it's just my own I don't know my own ego or something, but I thought. Kamala Harris or think I mean still I'm like would be a top tier like a great just politically speaking a great candidate and a great candidate to to go up against Trump also having seen Beto live in a very small setting I agree with you I mean I'm I saw incredible charisma and I've been I guess maybe I don't know as much as I, I thought I did because I I'm but specifically with 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 Kamala Harris I do you have any insight into what's why she's not doing as well I, I just don't get it um, I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm not. <laughs> you're asking yeah. the wrong guy, but I don't follow, <laughs> like, obviously I follow this stuff personally, but like, yeah. I, I don't have the expertise on, on, on campaign sort of electoral stuff that I, that I might on, on, uh, you know, national security sort of, sort of matters. But, um, these things are, you know, these things are not, you get pundits sort of, I think you get a false impression about what's going on, um, based on the sort of composition of, the media and their own attitudes not reflecting um, broadly what what the what the public thinks. I mean, if you look at TV, you think Trump is the most popular guy in the world. He's everywhere all right. the time, even during the election. You know, and uh, his numbers are quite low. He has an extremely zealous base, but um, it's not a very large one. Uh, maybe thirty or forty percent of the country. So I don't know. I think what you see. I'm not saying that the media is being like intentionally deceptive, but sure. um, you know, there's a warped. It, it's not one to one. The, the media is not the voter, and the voter is not even the American people because only half the country votes, and you know there are going to be certain factors involved in that too. So I think for all those reasons, it's really difficult to game out um, what is going to happen. I agree, and that's uh, could be another show entirely, but just that the intense focus on these rallies uh, because it's, I guess, what they consider it's really a car wreck in motion. But that's that's the that to me is the psychology, but. I guess the media is just ratings, and you do get uh, a warped perspective if you think that's and that's not even the that's not even Trump's base. That's the most rabid part of his base that go to these rallies. Right. So exactly, exactly. It's like what a cross section. I mean, yeah, half the country half the country votes, and then less you know less than half of that in popular terms voted for Trump. So you know it would I think be beneficial to remember that that. Um, what you see the cameras pointing towards, and I'm sort of sympathetic because, I mean, you, you do have to, how do you not cover, I mean, a lot of the Trump shenanigans, we don't have to, like this thing about the dog and the, in the, um, the, the you saw this in the New York Times, it's a story about how you photoshopped that thing on the dog. The, I did. The metal. It's like, yeah. well, who, who gives a shit? Like, I don't, I don't care, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so like some of the shenanigans obviously we have, but if they have a big thing, like, yeah, you kind of, I, I can sort of understand why an institution like the news would feel compelled to cover it. But, um, you know, for sort of a news consumer, um, they might not know that that's not perfectly representative of, of, of what the country thinks. So, um, and, you know, we don't get much in the way of sort of civic education about, you know, how to think critically about these things. So I just wait to think about um, the conclusions that, that people may be drawing. I've done a lot of thinking about the really what the 
why diversity is so important, especially in a newsroom or after the last two years. And what I mean is, is that when I, when I, in my opinion, the things that go on at these rallies and with Trump's base, I think if, if, if media was more diverse, I mean, in, in every way, uh, racially, more women, um, what it, just take your pick. I think that I think that people who are from marginalized groups are less likely to look at what's happened at let's say one of these rallies with this sort of car wreck eye, like like that doesn't touch yeah. me. Look at you know what I mean? Yeah, I totally agree. And I don't I haven't spent much time in the I don't look I don't I don't I'm just talking here, so I don't know what the makeup is of the uh, newsroom in some big place, but it's just I just think that's so important. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, no, I totally agree. I totally agree. And then, I mean, there's regional things too. The whole, I, I don't know how much is, some things could be improved for sure. Uh, I mean, I, I wish we had more of, uh, obviously, ethnic diversity, um, socioeconomic diversity. But then also there's regional stuff too. I mean, most mm-hmm. of the jobs are in New York or D.C. And um, I don't know what you do about that because that's yeah. just kind of the nature of the beast. I mean, all the officials are in D.C., and so then, you know, things become sort of insular for the for the folks that work there. And then, uh, you know, New York, it's a cool place. Um, but when you just base all the all these media firms there, I have to imagine that's that's that that will have an effect on on. I'm not saying like it's an intentional thing. Like, no sure. Be like, oh, screw screw the Midwest. We're not covering them. But it's just like you know, it might not occur to you. I mean, I'm sure I have, I'm sure I have these biases too myself. Yeah, exactly. And even even down to it's like. When I watch those rallies, I, I, I just come away with a different take. I just look at it, and and I'm sure you do too. And maybe somebody who has nothing to lose looks at it and just says, "Oh well, this is interesting," you know? Yeah. It's like, yeah, like driving by that car wreck on that that you had nothing to do with on the way to somewhere else in life. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I yeah, it's you like. I really wonder, but then again, I, I can't, I got no facts in front of me. I'm just, we're just talking here about that. Right. Um, I mean, so moving, I guess moving into 2020, uh, I don't, do you have any thoughts on how the election will play out? And I mean that, and I don't even mean candidate wise. I just mean, what, it, what is next year going to look like? Exactly. Uh, oh, my guess is as good as yours or anybody else's. Um, I would not make a bet. Uh, yeah. The question was, you know, will the will Trump win or the Democratic nominee? Because everybody likes to look at Trump's numbers, and for sure they're quite low, um, uh, not just by contemporary standards, but even by historic standards. Um, yeah. His approval rating is what, like forty percent? That's pretty low for this for for you know three years under his term. But um, there are other factors. It's not just about somebody's popularity because we don't have a perfectly sort of democratic. As I said before, half the country doesn't vote. The people that do vote, it's heavily skewed towards the wealthy. Um, and those are the people, the, the poor, are the people most likely to, um, you know, dislike Trump's policies. And then uh, above all that is the simple fact that there's something called the incumbency advantage. It's something political scientists refer to when they talk about um, not just presidential elections, but presidential elections in particular, but um, ones generally. When someone's in office, they have all sorts of institutional advantages. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, if you actually look at the number of times someone loses re-election, it's, much, it's less common than, than, than winning re-election. And there are all sorts of institutional reasons for that. Um, one is they, you know, are in government and they can control the media in a way that um, uh, a challenger cannot. Um, and then also, you know, businesses make deals with them in terms of um, lobbying and things like that. What, you know, why do you want to 
start a whole other administration. I, I'm sure that there's, you know, I would imagine that there's a um, kind of uh, structural economic thing where, where you know, they've sort of propped up this guy and made deals with them and kind of arranged things. So let's just keep keep it how it is. There's sort of inertia there. Um, so so I would be very hesitant to, to um, just say, oh, his numbers are low, he's done. <laughs> but at the same time, his numbers yeah. are quite low. And, you know, we didn't teach investigation, so I have no, I, again, I have no idea what effect that will have. So um, I guess I'll kind of defer to, defer to um, history here and just let, let it play out. Right. Yeah, in my opinion, and I'll just, I'll just say this and on this topic, I think that, right, I mean, number-wise, uh, he is underwater versus, versus almost any candidate. Uh, I do know with 100% certainty that our next election will uh, – you know, I'm sorry to say this will probably not be free and fair. I don't know what's going to happen, but I do just want to put that out there that uh, besides showing up to vote, everybody just needs to stay uh, stay frosty, as they say in the military. Uh, <laughs> and uh, do, do the Young Turks and uh, yourself have anything coming up, anything planned that, uh, you know, the audience might want to know about, whether it's your reporting or just something with the election, anything we want to know about? I would just say, um, I mean, obviously, we're going to have a bunch of cameras uh, following the kind of electoral extravaganza around. I don't do that quite much. I'm more kind of old-fashioned, long-form investigative stuff. But uh, if anyone's in government, and, and I don't care what agency, uh, I have some of the richest conversations uh, with people who just heard about, heard me on a podcast or something. Um, mm-hmm. Hit me up on Signal. That's an encrypted app that's free. Um, you just text me at 202-510-1268. Um, once again, that's 202-510-1268. Um, you guys reaching out to me is a huge part of the reason that I'm able to do any of this and reach the, reach the public with it. Um, and so I'm grateful for that, but then I also try to try to, um, mention my, my contact wherever I can. Absolutely. And if I may close on, uh, and by the way, you should be speaking to Ken on signal. Uh, if you have something that he needs to know, uh, if you've, you've heard just in this broadcast, two, two stories that are unbelievably important that both, you know, you broke, uh, but I would like to close by saying that that signal conversation that we had today was just hilarious. Um, I, what, what, what it was, was, uh, <laughs> I meant to, what it was, was I meant, I meant to text Ken the phrase, ah, cause we had a little, a time, a uh, little mix up, but I, I, instead I texted something like, uh, shh, I'll call you. It was like so sketchy. <laughs> like I, I just started laughing. Everything it was like, the NSA, NSA gets that. They're going to yeah. think you're, you're some, uh, Cell in 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 Afghanistan or something, and it's just my my buddy at forensic news here. <laughs> I I just laugh so hard. Like if someone texted me like Shh, I'll call you later, I'd be like, yeah, I'm not doing the podcast. <laughs> like I'm not. <laughs> like I'm not. No, you see, this is all part of the game. I appreciate the cover for the for the folks it, that I that I don't want them to see our conversation. Yeah. You know, I was like, no. I was like, no. I just texted. Oh, it's like, oh no, follow up. Can. Uh, <laughs> It's so great having you on Counterintelligence. I look forward to the next one. Thank you for listening. Follow Forensic News on Twitter at Forensic Newsnet. Counterintelligence is at IntelPod. My personal account is Eric LeVay. Support Forensic News on Patreon. Subscribe to Counterintelligence everywhere you listen to podcasts. This is Eric LeVay, and this is Counterintelligence.